0: My guest today is Robert Lucas, the John Dewey Distinguished Service Professor of Economics at the University of Chicago. He was awarded the Nobel Prize in Economics in 1995. Bob, welcome to Econ Talk.
1: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: I want to start our conversation talking about growth. You wrote about some of the puzzles of growth in your 2002 book, Lectures on Growth, saying that once you start to think about them, it's hard to think about anything else. Well, I, I can relate. What I'd like you to do first is tell us about some of the stylized facts that got you thinking about growth. What we know, and then we'll turn to some of the puzzles and how we might explain them.
1: Sure. <clears throat> I mean, what I meant by it, it's hard to think about it. You know, it, was, it. Was after giving some statistics on the on the differences in living standards when you compare the richest to the poorest countries in the world. At that time, it was on the order of say a twenty to one. You know, the average American. Income per capita in the United States would be about 20 times income per capita in India. It's hard to measure per capita income in very low countries. <clears throat> so that could be 30 to 1 or 15 to 1, but there's a huge gap in living standards between the very rich and the very poor. And the question is, where did this gap come from and and uh, and, uh, and what can be done about it?
0: There's also an enormous – that's a gap in the levels. Uh, right. You, you point out with some care in your book uh, the importance of distinguishing between levels and growth rates. Right. Uh, the growth rates are also different.
1: Right. If they weren't, the levels wouldn't have been. If you go back, back to the 18th century, let's say, living standards in, in Asia and in Europe were pretty close. Maybe there was a little edge to the Europeans, but – People are getting on the order of uh, 600 or 500 US dollars worth of income per year on average in China in, in England in you know wherever. maybe there's a difference again there, these figures aren't measured without error, so maybe maybe there are two to one differences, but nothing on the order of 15 or 20 to one. So what happened since the 18th century is the Western Europe. And countries like the Americas, that are occupied by Western Europeans, started to grow at a sustained level, and and Asia and Africa just sat there. So over the years, the income gap has just widened and widened and widened. Um, So so economic growth is the reason why the levels, you know, the countries with high incomes today are the ones that enjoyed two centuries of economic growth, or maybe even one century or or half a century, if you think about South Korea or or Japan. But they've been growing for a long time, and that's how they got rich.
0: So economists have been trying to understand these questions going back to at least Adam Smith. Uh, But in the last part of the 20th century, from the 60s on, economists tried to build formal models of these both differences and differences in level and differences in growth rates. And some of those early models... Uh, there was an expectation that the gaps would narrow in a natural way the idea of convergence. Can you talk about what what the intuition was behind those models and uh, why they may have been disappointed in those predictions?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure how, how – uh, I would characterize the, the – in the 60s when growth theory was born, modern growth theory was born, I would characterize it a little bit differently. Uh, people – Robert Solo was the leader in this, the MIT economist – um, designed the first growth models in the sense of a differential equation that you could actually solve out that would give you a growing time path of income. Uh, but he was trying to think about the growth rate in the, in the successful economies, the United States, the U.K., uh, northern Europe. Uh, and then the idea was that the, the poor countries would have to do a lot of centralized uh in order to get into the to the situation where a solo model would even apply, they'd have to sort of plan their way out of poverty. That's what, there they the, the people were looking toward this, Russia, the Soviet Union as a model. <clears throat> so I don't think that people were appreciating that there was a natural tendency for the poor to catch up with the rich. On the other hand, I think they thought there was a lot of explicit government policy uh, that was going to need it to make that happen and and. To the sort of two branches of growth theory, one to deal with the successful countries, which focused on free markets, and another branch of theory to dealing with the poor countries, uh, which which was largely focused on centralized planning.
0: I guess I was thinking of the idea that if you look naively at in 1960 between rich and poor, rich countries, and it's still true today have more capital, right. more technology, more machinery, more equipment right. that makes the average worker more productive. And some people speculated that, well, there was such tremendous opportunity in these poor countries, capital would inevitably flow to its higher return right. in those poor countries. So, so Well,
1: that's that- what Solos' theory says if you take it literally, that's for sure. I don't know if he was willing to follow out that implications, but other people were uh i mean yeah diminishing returns the, the law of diminishing returns just means that any resource is, is got a higher return where it's most scarce so that means that that uh capital equipment skilled labor should should be getting much higher returns in in the poor countries where they're scarce than in the rich countries where they're abundant if that were true then you'd think that you know skilled people and capital goods would would move, migrate from from the U S and Europe to the poor countries, but you know nothing like that happens. We happens so a little bit. That.
0: It happens a little bit, right? We build American multinational companies, build factories in those poorer countries. Okay. But it doesn't transform. Yeah, that's, that's true. It doesn't Didn't, transform their standard of living. It helps it a little bit, perhaps. Oh,
1: it helps it a huge amount. But 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 at least it's, uh, that's the, that's what's going on in mainland China now at a very large scale. I'm not saying you don't see this tendency around, but if it were strong enough, this huge income gap wouldn't have emerged in the first place.
0: Right. So there must have been either barriers to that capital flow or some subtleties in the returns that are not easily uh, measured or observed. Right. You raised the idea of the obvious obvious example is corruption or insecure property rights might keep a – a capital an investor from moving capital to a, a low income country, but that can't be the whole story.
1: No, I, I think there's plenty of poor countries that have uh uh you know feudal economies which are run by the wealthy and have very secure property rights and uh, nothing happens. It's not a it's not a it's not an a sufficient condition for economic growth. But it certainly is a necessary condition. I mean you're not gonna put an investment in a country it's going to be nationalized or, or confiscated uh, next
0: year you talked before I move on i want to I want to emphasize the point you made a minute ago about China and the incredible transformation in China in the last yeah. ten years or so for, yeah um, there there is an impression out there, and uh, we talked a little bit about this on this show when i when I interviewed uh, Robert barrow mm-hmm. uh, that there's an impression out there that somehow. The rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer, mm-hmm. and uh, the international global trading scheme is designed to exploit the poor countries. Yet the data are very clear, as you point out in your book and in an essay at the Minneapolis Fed that we'll put up on, on the web. Uh, you point out very clearly that poverty is declining. The yeah, bit-
1: no, every serious student of economic growth knows that. That's not even a controversial.
0: Yeah it's not controversial among serious students of economics it may be more controversial among the, the average uh american or average listener Maybe. That, so when we talk about this extraordinary explosion of inequality or or the gap between high living high standard of living countries and low standard of living countries it's it is still the case that the low standard of living countries in the last say 40 years have improved their standard of living tremendously oh for sure
1: i don't think the growth of the west came at the expense of africa and asia but 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 it's only recently that it's starting to uh, be, be that it's starting to be shared in by by Asians in a big way, and uh, someday it will be in Af- Africa too.
0: I hope. Yeah. Uh, now going back to this evolution of economics and the way it looks at growth, uh, sometime in the last forty years, maybe about halfway through, economists started looking at at what what we call human capital. Instead of looking at physical capital of machinery, we looked at right. some measure of, of skill embodied in people rather than in machines. Right. Called technology or knowledge. Talk about how you think about that and how you're thinking on that has and the professions has changed over time. Because it's very complex. It's a very rich and difficult to, to pin down idea.
1: Well let me go back to Solo's work in the nineteen fifties and the original growth model. Um, and, and what Solo found was the model was set up to focus on the accumulation of physical capital, uh, and, and so he wrote out equations describing a model in which physical capital accumulation was possible and increased productivity. and And the key implication of this model was that the the growth rate of that economy would 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 slow down and 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 keep slowing down until it 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 equaled the rate of population growth. So per capita incomes. Couldn't grow perpetually in an economy where growth was driven by physical capital only and the point is that, again it's the law of diminishing returns that each additional unit of capital is less and less adds less and less to productivity than the preceding units and and at some point that catches up with the system, so you can't focus the theory of growth entirely on on physical capital accumulation. So it's something else. What is something else? It's knowledge, technology. If you just think about it. Everyone knows that we can do all kinds of things now, and uh, that that people didn't dream of uh, twenty years ago or a hundred years ago. Um, and, and the machines we can build get better and better, and, and that's because you know it's, it is human capital. Uh, the terms knowledge, human capital—they're all kind of synonyms, the way I see it. They all mean pretty much the same thing, and they mean just what I said. We need something besides physical capital accumulation to account for this sustained growth in living standards.
0: So in the solo model, uh, the solo model poisoned, I think, a lot of economic development because it said – at least this is the way uh, William Easterly talks about it in the elusive quest for growth – that somehow if if physical capital was the source of growth, which is what was the original model, physical capital is the source of growth, what we need to do is – Invest in machines and equipment in the in the poor nations, and then right. they'll get rich right that didn't happen. No, we did okay. a lot of those investments we spent a lot of money they spent a lot of money and we did we helped some, but it didn't pan out so that encouraged people to uh, to take a different approach but I, the way I think about this puzzle of of human capital and I know you 've thought about this so i'd like your thoughts the stock of of human capital is pretty widely available and in fact that's really the the essence of it you you talk about in your in your book the body of knowledge that is generally available for access by suitably prepared people mm-hmm. what Cousins called the stock of useful knowledge right that stock of useful knowledge is is widely known around the world right
1: well the the, the qualifier of suitably prepared people is essential i mean think about just to take an example uh <clears throat> the American physics profession in the 1930s. I mean, In the 1920s, America was nowhere. Somebody who wanted to, to get a real training in, in math or physics would go to Germany, where physics was happening. Uh, in the course of the 1930s, as as the Nazis sort of destroyed the, the scientific life of, 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 of Germany, more and more of these physicists came over to the United States. And that's when the U.S. started getting on the map Our current dominance in in physics started then. Now, you could get German, there were plenty of German-speaking American physicists in the 1920s. It's only, you know, it only takes a a couple of weeks to mail a physics journal from Germany to, you know, Cambridge, Mass, or Chicago. So, I mean, the knowledge is there in a way, but you don't learn, you don't get to the frontier of of an art or a science or anything by, by reading books. Everybody knows that. You have to go and interact daily with people. That's why painters went to Paris in the 19th century. That's why they went to New York in the, in the 1950s. You can see this in, in any field. So it's not a simple matter to tap into the world's uh, knowledge if you're talking about the frontier of scientific knowledge.
0: And that's a profound thought. And I, I love what you say in your book. Uh, I should mention to our listeners, the, the book we're talking about is is Lectures on Economic Growth. that came out in 2002. It's a very technical book in parts, but a uh, an untrained reader would profit from reading the non-technical parts and just skipping the equations. But there's a great deal of it's a great deal of formalism. It's a wonderful book for for a graduate student or a, a very skilled undergraduate, but even a a thoughtful uh, untrained person would would benefit from it. But in that book, you talk very uh, provocatively about Jane Jacobs. Yeah. And her understanding of cities as places where some of these synergies take place. Right. I think she's got a very good sense of it. In a non-technical way, but still insightful, right? Yeah, very insightful. And one of the things that you get from
1: Jacobs, it's easy to focus on famous examples like uh, painters or physicists, you know, the kind of high art or high science end of things. But Jacobs talks about, you know, the woman who invented the brassiere. It, you know uh, Ida Rosenthal who started Maidenform bra she was a seamstress who wanted to make her customers look good in in the dresses she was she, so there's all kinds of innovation taking place in every field and it doesn't have to be people with PhDs it's not high science it's just people who are who, who are trying to, trying to get get richer and they're trying to get richer by doing something good for their customers
0: I want to bring up another example used in the book, which I found extremely uh, interesting: the, the Liberty Shipyards of World War II. Yeah.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Extraordinary increases in productivity that took place yeah. over a very short period of time in the building of, of these warships at, yeah. at a time of crisis. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about what might explain that. How, you know, people. It's not like they suddenly brought in, uh, you know, Pedro Martinez to pitch for the team instead of me. Yeah. The, the people who were doing this were the pretty much the same people, and yet over a very short period of time, they got almost unimaginably more productive, twice as productive. Not- well, they
1: were new people. I mean, the shipyards. My, my, I lived in, in in Seattle at that time, and, and uh, in fact, my dad had moved there to try and get it. He was unemployed and wanted to get a job in the shipyards, and he got a job as a welder, which he had no experience at, uh, and and they accelerated the apprentice. <coughs> program so i mean in in a year he was a expert welder um so that's a steep learning curve uh and and i think lots of people working in the shipyards have been drawn in from other occupations it was 10 or 15 percent unemployment in in many regions of the united states still in those days in 1942 and uh they were all they were every day was a learning experience for them
0: what i suspect and i i like your thoughts on this. I'd suspect that some of that knowledge, some of the improvement was not in the skills of the hands of the workers getting more accustomed to doing what they were doing, right. but what you might call a Hayekian organic, the production of the knowledge that people learn things about where the rivet should go and the what he calls the particular knowledge of time and place –
1: Okay, well, my dad was a welder, but 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 there's managers of all kinds, and and uh, you know naval architects, and a lot of a lot of people at all levels involved in making a shipyard go.
0: And How that work was organized was probably an evolutionary process. They didn't have a blueprint on right. how to how to do it at first, and they must have learned a great deal on the job. Absolutely, that, that was institutional rather than just an individual.
1: Yep. But again, you were talking about having access to the world knowledge frontier. Uh, each ship, this happened to happen over and over again for each shipyard Interesting. when they opened up a new yard their productivity levels would start low it wasn't like they could just spend a couple of days hanging out in a successful yard and then implement those policies in, in a new yard People, a whole group of people had to get on board and, and, and learn how to work together to achieve this objective of a highly efficient shipyard and gets true anywhere too
0: But let's Take that to the international level now. Give you a puzzle that I think about a lot, kind of trivial, but maybe not. Uh, A chicken in America lays about 350 eggs a year because it's in an extremely productive capital environment of nutrition and medicine and everything to keep that chicken alive and as productive as possible. Okay. A third world chicken. Is scratching around in the backyard the way they scratched around in America fifty a hundred years ago. Right. And it lays fifty eggs a year. So an American chicken is seven times more productive than a third world chicken. Oh, I never
1: seen that statistic before. Pretty cool, isn't it? Yeah.
0: Uh it's part of the reason eggs are cheaper now than they were fifty or hundred years ago in America. But but here's the, the puzzle. The technology of how to make a chicken lay three hundred and fifty eggs, you don't have to go to the physics department in Chicago or the right. or the um the shipyard, it's the people who have that equipment would be thrilled to sell it to you in Indonesia or Malaysia or Vietnam. Right. But they don't use that equipment. They have high levels of labor. You're right. So they use labor intensive methods of production, of wandering around in the backyard and seeing where the eggs are rather than a, a, a hen house that organizes the eggs and rolls them down after they're laid using You're gravity, right. et etc. et cetera. What's going on there? Well, labor
1: is cheap there, so so the, the reward to economizing on labor for, for an American farmer is huge because uh, because most American farmers have pretty good city jobs and do, take care of the farm on the weekends. Um, so, so the opportunity cost of their time is very high. You go to China, uh, in the countryside, you see people outside working all the time. You can drive from one end of Illinois to the other and, and never see anybody outdoors. You know those farms seem to just, their Illinois farms are much more productive.
0: So, so the puzzle to me is that the knowledge of how to make productive chickens or productive almost anything is widely available. It's just not one source of these these differences is the profitability of adapting those technologies, right? Yeah. And the returns to labor and capital and investment in those in those countries. I guess it comes back to our original puzzle. If you were going to start an egg farm, you'd think you'd put it somewhere where it's most productive. It for America, it's here. Yeah. Uh, it's not in in China to then ship the eggs back across.
1: Uh, well, eggs, I guess, I suppose are I hard to ship, but yeah. but, but, uh, but more generally, but, uh, but but it seems to me the way you're describing it uh you know Chinese wage rates are going up at a pretty good rate, so it won't be that long before the salesman of these uh, uh egg equipment is gonna start making some sales in china and thailand and and so on um I'm not sure that's why they're over there now working that territory so in this it'll happen and but it's gotta be it's gotta be economically you know you know as you know worthwhile to make it happen
0: but the weird thing is they can't just jump um you talk in your book about the um, the painting in your hallway, which is not unrelated to this to this uh, the point. Ron, can you talk about that and what it tells us about returns to to work in the land with various types of equipment?
1: Well, this is just a, a painting of a farmer working his land in beautiful scenes some fruit trees. It's a spring painting. He's plowing. Um, I just was saying that this this kind of traditional agriculture that could have been any century in the last, uh, hundred years. It's like, you know, this way of life was not one in which it was any ongoing progress in living standards. Um, and you know, you certainly couldn't say that about, about, uh, farms in America now. You still say it about farms in Southern Mexico or parts of, of South Asia. People are work, working exactly the way their great grandfathers did. Um, that, that's 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 the way the world used to be,
0: so how are they going to get from uh there to here what process it's not going is... to happen in the villages
1: or the farms It happens in the cities just like jake jacob so, so people in the, any eighteen year old in China it would be given anything to get to Shanghai or Beijing, anything to get off the farm he's got schools he's got skilled people and all kinds of trades that he can learn from there's there's you know it's a place with a future. Feudal agriculture. Same thing with southern Mexico. Those guys, we give anything to get to Mexico City, and even more to get to Chicago. And a lot of them are doing it, uh, not because they're trained uh, for work in Chicago, but because they'll 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 start the training when they get here, um, learning from their for, for, from the migrants who came in last year and are helping to speak English, helping to find jobs, helping to learn how to do the jobs. Um so I, I think a, a, a economic growth is also always associated with a with a movement out of agriculture and in into the city environment.
0: Well, let me ask you a naive a naive question about that. Uh, that that Mexican uh eighteen year old that you were talking about who comes to Chicago legally or illegally right. and uh let's say she it's a she, and she hires herself out as a cleaning lady, or if right. it's a young man, maybe he's working on a construction crew. Right. His human capital hasn't changed. He's merely crossed a an invisible border yeah. uh, called the United yeah. States-Mexican border, and suddenly his standard of living is transformed effectively, I think, by the knowledge around him that he taps into, but not in any direct way. He doesn't leverage that knowledge, what's going on there?
1: What does he mean leverage that knowledge i mean
0: well, let's start with the simplest question. He makes more money uh or she makes more money here than there right why same person same same human capital. What's changed by crossing that invisible border
1: well let, let, let me imagine this this guy this Mexican kid is working as a dishwasher at a Chicago restaurant. that'd be an entry job. Mm-hmm. Or maybe a busboy job, uh, and no English is required. You can learn how to do the job in in half a day. You know, it it's, anyone's got the training to do it. Now, now, uh, what? But you know, what what they're doing is cooperating with other people and capital in producing, um, uh, you know, restaurant meals for 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 people in Chicago. Now, how productive you are in that enterprise depends. You can't do it all by yourself if you're a busboy. So it depends on 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 the quality of the waiters you're working with, the cooks, the, the the decor, the design of the restaurant. Anything that influences how much people are going to pay for that dinner is going to be is, is going to is going to be what your pay comes out of as as a busboy. Um, now, <clears throat> so it's you think of the busboy as one factor of production. He's combined with all other kinds of Factors which are more abundant in the United States. Um, plus, you know, Americans are richer, so they're willing to pay more for a restaurant dinner than than some people could in Mexico.
0: Right, and some of that is, and it's very nicely said. Some some of that is is capital, knowledge yes. about how to organize a, the physical layout of a kitchen with yeah. various appliances, etc., that make that restaurant profitable. That it would not be in Mexico City. Right. But a lot of it's just that pure complementarity with those other skills. I just I think it's just very beautiful and interesting that that the same worker. The other way I think about it is that I like to think I'm smarter than my dad, but my IQ probably isn't any higher; could be lower. Right. And yet my standard of living is much higher. And in fact, if you go back a few generations, people, of course, knew many more things that we know nothing about. Right. How to skin it, you know. Skin a skin a cow or slaughter a cow all kinds of specific forms of knowledge we have, don't have to think about because others have either learned it for us or we have machines that do it for us.
1: Right, right. Um, I mean the other thing is how many people are competing with you at your level, so you can get a job being a busboy in in, in a Mexico City restaurant and 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 and, uh, and, and there are plenty of. Outstanding restaurants in Mexico City, where the price of the meal is going to be at least as much as it is in Chicago, but but there there are thousands of poor Mexicans who who would who would work in that who are competing with you for that busboy job, uh, and, and that wage rate gets driven down to you know the level of some Afri- unskilled agricultural worker, I suppose. Um, up here in Chicago, m- most people. Uh, No high school graduate is going to take a job like that. I mean, just just, there's better opportunities out there for you.
0: Some Americans worry that 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 Mexican worker will take that job away or at least compete with the high school dropout uh, and drive down uh, the wages. People have tried to measure that, and there's disputes about it empirically. What are your thoughts on that?
1: It's got to be true to some extent.
0: Uh, So what do you think we ought to do about it?
1: Look, we ought to encourage people not to drop out of school. I mean – we can't set up our economy to to. What's good about the U.S. economy is it it offers people opportunities to move up in the world. Uh, now some people take those opportunities and some people don't. Uh, maybe some people don't even get them. But 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 uh, you know, don't drop out of high school. Uh, <laughs> I, I I don't think we we're going to set up the economy. To make high school dropouts protected from economic privation, it's just you know you don't you don't make much money if you're a high school dropout, and that's just the way it's going to be. Um, now, that, if, if 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 we didn't offer high school education to 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 people in general, that you'd have to that might be a problem. But I, I don't you know maybe we got to get our make we certainly be better off with better schools in low income areas. But even if, no matter how good they are, some people are going to take advantage of them and some people aren't. Uh, yeah. It's always been true in the heydays of American immigration a hundred years ago when people were, you know, coming over by the millions every every year. And, and uh, I suppose you could, for most Native Americans, it was a plus to have these guys here, but but uh, I suppose for some it
0: was a, was a negative. But the long-run impact, is even uh, is even better, of course. I think when you look at the credible dynamism that those those immigrants add to the overall yeah. economy that, w- that we've touched on indirectly, when we're talking about the cities as places of of, of ferment and creativity.
1: I mean, nobody now uh, is looking back and saying my family would be a lot better off if we hadn't admitted all those Italians and Jews and Poles and so on in 1900.
0: There are a few, but they don't get a lot of uh, airtime. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) They send me emails every once in a while, but yeah, but you're right. The average American uh, 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 does think it was basically a good thing to let uh, those folks come here. Um, Just to finish off this discussion of growth, what are the puzzles that that we don't understand that you think people will be working on over the next 10, 20 years and trying to understand growth?
1: Um, That's a tough one. Uh, uh, At any point in time, I I always think I understand everything. And and then it's only ten years later that I have to admit that ten years ago I didn't know a damn thing, and I've learned it all since. (laughs) It's always hard for me to answer questions like that. Um, It's a hard question to think about the transition between how did the Industrial Revolution ever get going Uh, There was a – Ricardo and Malthus uh, thought the basic dynamics of an economy were driven by fertility and demography. So if income went up, people would have more kids and drive the income per person down to some – restore some old equilibrium. And that's been true for centuries in most parts of the world, in all parts of the world before the 18th century – now, at some point, that ceased to be true. People got more more income, and instead of having more kids, they they just had more money per per child, and 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 that had a, that had that transition had to occur before economic growth was possible. Those same forces are still working in 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 places like uh, South Asia and Africa. Africa produces a lot more now than it did at 1960, but. Uh, but the population has grown more or less at the same rate, and the living standards in Africa haven't improved. So this demographic transition has to occur, and I don't think it's a very well-understood phenomenon. But we all did it. So the Africans will figure it out, too.
0: I hope so. They might need some better political institutions before Well,
1: yeah, I mean, they've got to be, yeah, exactly.
0: Uh, let's switch gears. Um, I want, I'd like you to talk, about an area that you've made just extraordinary contributions in, business cycle theory and macroeconomics generally. I want to start with a quote uh, that you – I think it's an aside in the Lectures on Growth book. You said, in general, I believe that the importance of financial matters is very badly overemphasized in popular and even much professional discussion. And in your your Nobel Prize lecture, you talk really – Eloquently, about the history of the way economists starting going back to Hume thought about and think about the role of money right. in our macroeconomic health right um, what have we learned about that and and what's left to learn?
1: Well, I think we learned a lot uh and i've learned a lot uh, in Monetary instability, changes in the quantity of money, especially sudden changes, seem to seem to uh, cause uh, problems in an the economy. They seem to be disruptive. And yet, you know, from the theoretical point of view, you could say, "Well, it's just a change of, of units. What does it matter whether I'm talking about measuring something in yen or dollars or or or, or euros or what happens thousands? Of dollars Why do we thousands. care if the value of the dollar changes over time? But Somehow we do." So, so a lot of business cycle work focused on the disruptive effects of monetary policy, or bad monetary policy, or the banking system. But I think, as in the, in the post-war period, and I think of the work of Kindle and Prescott and other people, that we we overestimated the importance of these monetary disturbances relative to just erratic changes in productivity and, and other real factors. Um and that the monetary instability is a very minor source of of, of uh of of instability in, in say the modern US or European or Japanese economies. Now now you know, one way of putting that is well, okay, we've learned how to do it right and if we went back to the to monetary policies of the nineteen thirties we might end up with nineteen thirties level depressions. So, you know, that could be true. But one way or another we got we got the story right. The modern Recessions are nothing. You, you can't even. Nobody can even remember. Ask people to ask. Were we getting a depression or a boom when I graduated from high school, or when I got married? No one can even remember. It's such. There's such minor wrinkles in in in, in, the, in the general scheme of things. You
0: know, people often forget that the Great Depression unemployment was 25. percent Right. We get worried now when it goes up to six from right. four. And obviously, for some people, it, it creates hardship. But the, the the magnitude of of economic uh, calamity has just totally changed in the right. last fifty years. Right. Right. Um, y- your work and and your assessment of of the work of others is that is to focus on when we do focus on the monetary side is to focus on the difference between anticipated and unanticipated <laughs> changes. Does, right. Do you still think those distinctions are important?
1: Oh, I think I could find episodes where they were. Uh, 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 the beautiful analysis of the end of the, of the wartime hyperinflations that Tom Sargent conducted, uh, where, where inflation was suddenly brought from enormous levels to zero and, 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 and yet no, 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 no depression followed. It was just, just a painless, uh, um, and Sargent attributes that to the, to the fact that they were anticipated, but but it's been it's proved to be damned hard to get that to get business cycles of any size in, generated by by in, inflationary surprises. It just doesn't seem to be there in the data. So and, I think it's an idea that uh, had its day, and and uh, <laughs> and uh, we've moved on.
0: And and then the at the current level. That that could be, as you say, because we've gotten better at it, or just because they're not they're not so effective.
1: I mean, I I want to I, I'm look, I'm not saying that monetary policy is not important. Monetary policy is the source of inflation. You know, and, and inflation is important. I, I think inflation right now, in, in, in inflation we had in the '70s caused way more damage than any post war recession. Uh, so inflation is is a is a is a bad thing, and there's no excuse for letting it happen, and we all know how to use monetary policy and how to prevent it from happening. So that's a big plus. Uh, But the real side, the changes in employment, economic growth, those sorts of things, they don't seem to depend very intimately on monetary policy. That's my current view.
0: And and tying this to our earlier discussion, if if we want to increase living standards either within an economy or across economies, we ought to be... We're going to have to look elsewhere. We're going to have yeah. to look at things that increase knowledge and in how to apply it and
1: right and productivity ways. is everything.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, if, so if you you say we understand that monetary policy, if if you were, uh, you think then being head of the Fed is a relatively um, unchallenging job. I want to I want to push you on your statement about financial matters are overemphasized. Did you mean by that the 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 credit that people give to to GreenSpan and and potentially to others for guiding us through this challenge is that, Okay you are talking about it,
1: running an economy a, a modern capitalist economy is a pretty good machine without a lot of uh, fine tuning or or management at the top you can you can you can make trouble at the top but but you know if, if greenspan had a, the economy grew at about the same rate over the greenspan years it has grown in every you know twenty year period since 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 the uh, <clears throat> civil war so everybody's you know it, it, so that these aren't miracles that have to be engineered by extraordinary people who only come along every now and then. It's the natural course of affairs in the u s economy. When something bad happens, like the Depression of the 1930s, then you look and say, okay, this was a bad decade.
0: Yeah. Who messed uh, up?
1: Somebody must have screwed up. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, if Gre- I- I'm happy Greenspan did a good job. He didn't screw up. Bern- Bernanke's not going to do it either. He's doing a great job. So are people running the European Central Bank. So are the people of the Bank of Japan. All the advanced countries are doing a reasonable job of controlling inflation, and uh, that's 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 what they're there for. So I'm I'm not I'm happy I'm very happy that uh, economists of the Bernanke level of quality are in positions of authority at the Federal Reserve System. There are plenty of people who who don't who, who shouldn't be. Um, that says, but I'm I'm saying that if we get a good an economist, he's going to he's going to get it right, and, and inflation is not going to be a problem. In that sense, I think it's easy.
0: Well, let me ask you about an, a comment that Milton made, uh, Milton Friedman made in an in an earlier podcast. I, I asked him about Greenspan and others who always talk about controlling interest rates.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, he said, "Well, that's what they say they do, but what they actually yeah. do is they they try to really affect the level of the money supply." Well, nobody talks in those terms anymore. But they don't talk that way. But what do you think? What do you think of that comment? Well, the way you the way you 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 you, uh, you lower
1: the funds rate is by is by putting more more reserves into the system, increasing the stock of high powered money, people call it, and and you raise interest rates by by uh, by uh, selling bonds and p- pull, p- pulling money out of the system. So the interest rate movements that are settled at the open market committee. When they arrive at a decision, they're arriving at a decision about what to do in the federal funds market by way of moving reserves into the system or out of the system but so they yeah, that's what Milton means,
0: but they that's, don't talk about it that way. no, why do you think
1: well, bankers have always talked about interest rates that's that's their living you know and and, <laughs> and 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 in in most historical periods, the uh bankers ran the federal reserve system. It's only recently that that uh that uh E-e- economists have started to have a, the predominant influence in, in, in running the Federal Reserve system. That's one of—I will view that as one of, uh, of Milton Friedman's uh, achievements—is to convince people that, 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 that uh, central banking is too important to be left to the bankers.
0: Yeah, I guess it's pretty uh, rare that people entrust anything to economists. I, I hadn't really thought about it. That is a uh...
1: no, no. Economists are running the world now. I mean, you just look around you used to be that econom- knowing economics disqualified you for a position in the Treasury Department. Now you get Larry Summers and John Taylor,
0: you know, really eminent
1: uh, economists yeah. having p- positions of authority in the Treasury Department.
0: Interesting. We, we don't get much input into designing <laughs> health care policy, though.
1: That's why the Clintons <laughs> uh, blew their chance to reform the insurance system is because they didn't get anybody. There are plenty of good economists, democratic economists, who could have... Help them design a, a redesign our, our health insurance system they just didn't didn't consult them,
0: yeah, well the politics uh, were different yeah they, they were they had other fish to fry um, it's just interesting that it, at the level of uh, the central bank that that those politics are not uh, as quite as uh, as dominant maybe well we're almost out of time i I'd like you to talk about uh, Milton Friedman uh, who just who we just mentioned. Mm-hmm. And his influence on you and, and your work.
1: Right. Well, I don't know if your your class – was he still teaching 301 when you were a student here?
0: I took his last class, but it was not 301. It was an, a not-for-credit seminar. Oh, okay. Where it was 19, This was fall of 76, yeah. right before he won the Nobel Prize. And he would stand in the front of the room, and the class was very simple. We could ask him anything we wanted.
1: Okay. And
0: we we often asked him uh questions off the core exam, the qualifying exam, uh partly because we wanted to know what the answers were and partly because we wanted to see if he knew what the answers were.
1: Uh-huh. Uh
0: he got most of them, but he didn't get every one of them, which always <laughs> we found very comforting. Okay.
1: Well, in in my day which is which is I took that course in 1960 and uh, it was just a It was a life-changing experience. It was the most exciting thing. By the time you take your first course in graduate school, you've had 16 years of schooling or something like that, so you think you've seen everything. And Milton's class is just, he was so, uh, it was so exciting, and and every day you'd be applying economic theory, fairly simple economic theory, to a brand new problem. You'd be arguing about it for, you know, a whole class in Milton for darn 20 minutes, and... After leaving the class, you were so stimulated. I'd work all night trying to, trying to, you know, think about what, what was going on in the lecture. He it, it was—he's a great, great teacher. Um, back then, he wasn't a famous, you know, household word, and and, and only people who knew knew that were, were people who took his courses at Chicago. But after a while, you know, Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan and everybody in the world got in on that in a way. You saw that in this Free to Choose series. Um, of course, he's also a great scientist and, and made huge research achievements that people are, are still building on. Um, but, but for me, this, this, this his teaching style, which is impossible to imitate. At least I've never. I gave up trying years ago. It was it, it's something I never seen before or since.
0: Who else was uh, intellectually stimulating in those days of Chicago in the '60s?
1: Well, there were a lot of people doing good work. I ended up working with Arnold Harberger on a public... He was doing some really cool work on, on taxation. Steve uh, Grilicus uh, was a stimulating guy. Um, there were a lot of good people. Greg Lewis was, was, was a labor economist that I took some courses with, and he really... Working with him was really apprenticing. It was like my dad learning how to be a welder. I mean, you really... Sit down and learn, learn your trade. It was it was a great, great uh,
0: background. Yeah, his name is is not as well known as many from those no. years, but he was. A, ex- my understanding is he was an extraordinary mentor.
1: He of, was of, and, of graduate and, students. You know, like Gary Becker would view himself as as a, as a student of Lewis's uh, as well as Friedan's in more or less the same way I would. So were lots of other other Chicago students. I was not a particularly macro guy back in those days.
0: You were a history major undergraduate, right
1: well, yeah, I didn't know any economics as an undergraduate
0: and why did you turn to economics? What got you interested?
1: you know I sort of thought I was sort of a pseudo marxist or something I thought economic forces were 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 what made history go i I still do really and uh um so I tried to learn some economics and uh you know I just couldn't do you have to you can't just learn economics by taking out a book at the library and reading it. You have to you have to be involved with people. So I, I switched over into economics, thinking I would get back to history sooner or later. I'm sort I'm of getting there now, but it took a while.
0: What, what do you mean by that?
1: I'm doing more historical uh, work, you know, thinking about the early days of the Industrial
0: Revolution. My guest today is Robert Lucas, the John Dewey Distinguished Service Professor of Economics at the University of Chicago.